I'm Hannah. I'm Sheena. And I'm Lori. And this is Cemetery Row. Woohoo! Spooky season. Very excited. Spooky season. I'm so happy. I love it. I love it. It's and it's actually like it's been in the 50s here in the city, and the leaves are changing. And I'm like, yes, I'm (laughs) achieving my final form. (laughs) We have not had really a lot of leaves changing because it's Memphis. Yes, yeah. But I will say, dying because we have rain. Everything's just no. Um, But last night was um, the second night of Soul of the City at Elmwood, and it was so cold. And it was so fun to be out in a cemetery in the dark and the freezing cold, mm-hmm. but that's okay. I had a spooky sweater on, so it made everything better. So. Absolutely. Speaking of spooky season, um, hell yeah! I uh, I have a new friend. The <laughs> podcast has a new mascot. You do. We do. I'm I'm not sure how I feel about it yet. Um. So. I will start the story off by saying this is not the first time some stranger has left something on my porch. Um, many, many, many moons ago, someone left me a bunch of pumpkins on one of my little shrubs outside. And it was during Halloween, which I always go all out for Halloween. I don't really go all out for any other holiday. And it was like a bunch of like a mix of orange pumpkins and teal pumpkins, which I learned later teal pumpkins um, for allergies. For allergies, I think. Um, and autism. Yeah. And autism, yeah. yeah. So, like, that was good. I learned that. Um, if you didn't know that, now you know that. Um, so, like, I went out and got a bunch of, like, toys and hopefully candies that would not trigger allergies and stuff like that. So, that was good to give out to trick-or-treaters, which I had a lot that year. But anyway, and then last year, I came home from a concert and someone had left a framed photo of Dorothy from Wizard of Oz on my porch. That was also in October. And then this year, I wake up and I look outside on my spookily decorated porch, and there's a doll. And this yep. doll is um, she was large. She's yeah. large. Um, she none of her parts match, so I think she was cobbled together Frankenstein style. Oh, bless! We I didn't will know that. include. Yeah, we'll include photos. We She's- will. She's been rode um, hard and put up wet, this doll. I told, well, and I suspected my neighbors who live upstairs. I love them. They're sweet guys. And when I went outside to, like, get a good look at her, I ran into them. And I'm like, did you do this? And they were like, no. And somehow we got to talking about it. And I said, well, she has some seen some shit hair. <laughs> because, quite frankly, that's what her hair looked like. Well, then I go to Soul of the City. And this this happened on Friday the 13th. So I woke up Friday the 13th and there's this creepy doll outside. Okay, cool. I go to Soul of the City. I come back. It looked like someone had cut her hair or messed with it somehow. I wake up Saturday morning. I look. The hair's gone. It, it's sitting right beside her. She has discarded her, her wig um, or, you know, went full Britney, which I know is not funny. Mental illness is not fun. I know. Trust me. I'm mentally ill myself. I can say it. Um, right, but she um, I don't think she did anything last night. I haven't gone outside to look, but from behind, it seems like she has behaved herself. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the the question now is who, unless she just crawled from the depths of hell herself, which is entirely possible. Um, so yeah, so that's the new mystery in my life right now. So if anyone <laughs> wants to fess up, I would not be mad. 
What was so funny is that you messaged us and we're like, y'all, and the photo or whatever you had sent video through. So me and Lori are like, what What is is happening? (laughs) Yeah. And you were like, I I don't know. And I'm like, bitch, we don't know either. Like, what is happening? I thought the video went through and I found a short little video of me like opening the blinds to kind of show y'all like what it was like for me. Like when I opened my blinds. Oh, oh, okay. There's a doll sitting outside. Yeah. If this thing moves and like gets in the window, I will burn it with fire, which what else would you burn it with? Acid, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. um, Yeah. I just don't want it in my window. So anyway. So yeah, I'll share photos of that and like i said if anyone wants to fess up to any leaving anything on my porch whether it was the pumpkins many many moons ago whether it was dorothy who is now hidden away in my shed um i got tired of looking at her no offense to her or or the doll the yes because i was accused and said shenanigans but i was trying to get up to far different shenanigans that evening and and, and did i not involve thought a doll. it was Luhu. i kind of <laughs> thought it was Luhu, and then i and then it's like no that's not a Luhu gag um a lot of people have suspected spencer but he doesn't have a great car and he has a fresh new boyfriend so if it's not related also up to shenanigans he is also up to shenanigans but if it does not involve antonio he's not worried about (laughs) antonio oh my antonio that is such a new boyfriend name that he they are madly in love it's very cute i I support it 100 percent. so we love it told I told uh, McDuff already. I'm like, you have a new uncle, Uncle Antonio. You'll probably never oh meet him, God. but that's okay. Anyway, um, so speaking of other spooky crap, I have tours coming up. I know y'all are so sick of hearing me talk about no, that, but never get over it, friends. On Sunday, October 22nd, I am giving a True Crimes of Bygone Times tour at Elmwood Cemetery in Memphis. I just found a new crazy criminal to talk about. So we're going to change up the tour just a tiny bit, not a lot, um, to throw him in there because I I just found so many amazing quotes about it. I mean, as I told the girls, his wife liked to occasionally shoot him, you know, yeah. um, which Who does just it? that wording, that wording in the newspaper just killed me. Um, then I'm giving Scandals and Scoundrels tour of Elmwood Cemetery on Friday, October 27th. Um, you will have clur- curls, curls to curls, perch, pearls to clutch. <laughs> I love it. I have not had caffeine this morning. I have pearl necklaces for everyone, courtesy of Cemetery Road Podcast, and you will get a a string of pearls to clutch because that whole tour is basically scandals and scoundrels. It's like, oh my God, I I get to walk around the cemetery and tell the dirt on everybody, which, you know, literal and figuratively. Um, Anyway. And then on Saturday, November 4th, I'm giving my writer's tour, which is still one of my favorite tours. I don't think a lot of people are into it, but I'm like, y'all, we got some crazy stories on that. Please show up. So I hope they'll people get do. into it. I hope so. Um, It's not boring. It's not like, oh, this guy wrote a book and died. Like, no, it's like I said before, you know, people who marry dead people and live people and crap like that. Um, so anyway, that is all happening at Elmwood Cemetery. I'm still your Monday night ghost guide at Backbeat Tours. So if you want to take a walking ghost tour of downtown Memphis, hit me up on Monday nights. I'm occasionally on the weekends, but not always, just sometimes. And if you want to hear me talk about spooky stuff, 
and hopefully you do. My friend Patrick had me on his podcast, Swirl Talk 901. Um, it is a local show where he talks about a little bit of everything. Um, kind of, a lot of times it's generally sort of um, LGBTQ plus community related, but not always. Um, anyway, I mean, he had me on there just to talk about spooky stuff and patrick is lovely and he had um our mutual friend robin which is how i met patrick we're up we're both on there and we're talking spooky stuff so go give that a listen it is swirl talk 901 now i'm done promoting stuff <laughs> awesome well, you're you're the one of us who actually does things that are i know I well, I took my child to chuck e cheese this weekend for her birthday and then my yeah, other child did got himself all worked up because he couldn't go to sleep and barfed everywhere at one in the morning so who among us has not gotten <laughs> ourselves so worked up we puked okay uh a like lot. i understand it oh i, I do it too completely. like i'm right there with you sawyer i've done that so many times <laughs> this child can literally puke on command so that's terrifying yeah terrifying yeah. but um and today boys. my brother would be turning 42 so oh fortunately he's Joe. not happy. with us but Happy, Happy birthday, heavenly Joe. birthday. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, so it is spooky season. We have a bunch of a wide variety of spooky tales oh, yeah. for you. Um, I think we all have two stories apiece. So strap in yeah. and let's let's do this, Hannah. Let's get spooky. Okay. Yes. Picture it. 1956. Uh, on December 28th, 1956. Two of the seven children, Jesus, born to Joseph Cornelius and the Loretta Grimes, um, their 15-year-old daughter, Barbara, and their 12-year-old daughter, Patricia, went to a screening of the Elvis Presley film, Love Me Tender, at the Brighton Park Theater, which is, it's been torn down, but the neighborhood that it's in is on the south side, um, Mm. an Archer Road, which is not far from Resurrection Mary. I was about um, to say, I know. So, yeah. <laughs> so that area, I'm telling you. So not far from Midway Airport. So Barbara and Patricia, being so close in age, were inseparable sisters and very attentive students at the Catholic high school or the Catholic schools they attended. Um, they are no and they were Elvis stands. They had just joined the fan club, and this was the eleventh viewing of Love Me Tender. I love that for them. Oh, it's gonna. I it's the same it. thing with these Swifties going to the movies now. Absolutely, like they will go I, eleven times. I'm here for it, and I love that for them. I saw Twilight how many times? It was ridiculous, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, they left their house at about seven thirty and told their mother they would be home before midnight. Uh, the Brighton Theater was about a one and a half miles uh from their home, which. In Chicago terms and city terms, it's not a bad walk, um, or you can yeah. take the bus. So, you know, it's pretty easily navigable and really not that far. Um, they were presumed to have about $2.50 in their possession, which imagine the days where you could leave with two fifty in your pocket and be okay for the night. Yeah, actually um, buy things. Wow. Yeah, right. And Barbara had... Um, so there's going to be two showings of it. And so they might have stayed for the second showing, which, again, I love this for them. <laughs> Absolutely love this for them. <laughs> um, so it's unknown how they got again to the theater. But 
it was either they walked or bust. So that's pretty much where you get everywhere. Yeah. Um, a school friend of Patricia's named Dorothy um, told investigators that she had been seated behind the girls and her own little sister. Um, and they had left the theater at intermission, um, which was about 930. Um Maybe to go get popcorn. Who knows? Um, They had seemed in good spirits and there was nothing bothering them. Of course not. They were going to see uh, their dozenth showing of Love Me Tender. Um, They had stayed to see it. Um, They would have expected to get home about 1145. Uh, When they had not gotten home by midnight, their mom um, sent their older sister... 17 Teresa and their brother Joey, who was 14, to wait by the bus stop um, to, you know, meet them and get them home and probably say, hey, you know, mom's fixed to whoop your ass. Um, <laughs> after three more buses stop, didn't stop um, and the girls didn't get off, they were in, now in a tizzy. So parents are like calling other friends. Other friends are like, nope, did, they're not here. They didn't see them. Um, and so Loretta goes to the Chicago police department at 2 AM, uh, and files a police report on December 29th, which having a mom very much like this, yeah, I actually, um, I flew into Midway and back in March and there was like, my phone was completely dead and there was some bullshit with my car. So my parents couldn't get a hold of me and I didn't get back to my apartment until almost midnight. And my dad was literally on the phone with the Chicago PD at the time. So yeah. I was like, tell him to call everybody off. I am home. My phone died. Yeah. And there's some shit going on with my car. So Miss Laura Grimes, I understand. So does my mom. <laughs> oh, yeah. hundred percent. So the disappearance sparked one of the largest missing person cases in the history of Cook County, which considering the history of Cook County quite a lot yes Um, it is they started a citywide search there was hundreds of police officers assigned um they even brought in folks from the suburbs to kind of help um and they also had hundreds of volunteers so these were you know it's two kids this is the middle of the 50s they were going to see an elvis movie what's more americana than that i know um they did door-to-door canvassing throughout brighton park they dredged canals and rivers um, 15,000 flyers were distributed. The parishioners of their church offered a $1,000 reward. Um, the, about 2,000 people were subjected to interrogation. Um, two arrests and charges were brought against individuals, but that fell apart. And one of them asserted that he had been coerced into giving mm. uh, a confession. That's and never good. 1950s Chicago cops. Yeah. That coercion yeah. was probably not gentle. No. Um, despite police efforts and tons of media, including Elvis himself telling the girls to go home, um, yep. you know, to be good, go home, and that he appreciated their, you know, patronage, but go home to your parents. Um, there was really nothing. Um, it said they had been at the theater on December 28th. People saw them at the theater. And then some said that they in, they saw them entering a car. Others 
they they didn't but um and it was described as the man was described as being very similar looking to elvis presley which i'm sure was a draw um and that it was a mercury um Several investigators theorized the sisters had run away from home or were voluntarily staying with boyfriends. But again, the parents were like, no, you know, these were good Catholic young teenagers. They're they're not going to do that. Um, There were front page news by December 31st. They would only be considered, you know, the cops to the cop thing of, well, are we sure they aren't just are we sure yeah, you know, and maybe one time out of ten that that's true, but yeah. nine times out of ten, maybe go fucking look for them. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, um, you know they had they had gone about a week again before you know they'd heard anything, and so again, return home, return home, even though their parents thought there's no way in hell they ran away. Somebody, yeah, somebody took these girls. Um, numerous alleged sightings, of course, would be reported as late as January 9th. Um, they would report seeing the girls in various business establishments. They look like average little Italian girls. They, I mean, they're little white girls. They look like a hundred. I could walk outside right now and see like 10 people that look just like them. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, again, but of course, every time you had one of these sightings, the cops were like, oh, see, they're in away from home. And it's like, come the fuck on. I know. Theories abounded that they may have gone to Nashville to see Presley in concert. Um, or, you know, they had been motivated to, you know, hit the road because, I mean, it's it's Elvis Presley, not Jack Kerouac. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so on January 19th, uh, Elvis Presley issued the following televised statement. If you were good Presley fans, you'll go home and ease your mother's worries. Um, He also made a direct plea on the radio, uh, imploring them to return home to their mother because he was also a good mama's boy. So he he was (laughs) understanding. However, January 22nd, 1957 rolls around and there was a rapid thaw and a construction worker named Leonard Prescott described or spotted what he described as quote these flesh colored things oh god oh leonard behind a guardrail as he drove along a rural country road named german church road um in incorporated will unincorporated willow springs initially unsure he thought what everyone thinks mannequins um it's never a mannequin (laughs) it's never a mannequin one day it will be a mannequin. Until then, it will always be bodies. Um, <laughs> yeah. He brought his wife back with him for some reason, and she fainted w- when she saw them. <laughs> maybe he thought they were like dress forms, and his my- wife might want them uh, or something. Maybe that's my thinking. But no, she was like, "You brought me to see a dead body." Yeah. What? And she was not into it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> They were the nude, frozen bodies of the Grimes sisters, and the Prescotts, I'm sure after he woke his wife back up, um, went to the Willow Springs Police Department to report it. They were on a flat, horizontal section of snow-covered ground directly behind the guardrail, which extended for just 10 feet. Um, so it could have, and then there was a embankment that went into something called Devil's Creek. So my guess is somebody tried to push them off or you know and it didn't work yeah, or yeah they thought maybe animals would drag them down who knows mm-hmm. um 
Barbara lay on her left side with her legs slightly up toward her torso. Patricia lay on her back with her body covering her sister's head and her own head turned sharply to the right, which is such a big sister thing to do that it's so upsetting. Um, It is believed the sisters had most likely have been driven to this location in a car with their bodies being dragged or lifted out of the vehicle and then again placed or thrown behind the guardrail. Three wounds resembling those typically inflicted by ice picks were discovered on Barbara's chest and injuries resembling blunt force trauma were visible upon her face and head. Um, Numerous injuries resembling bruises were on Patricia's face and body. Um, The girl's father, Joseph, was driven to the crime scene to identify the bodies. Poor, poor dad. Um, Following his uh, positive identification of the bodies, more than 160 police officers from various uh, police departments, including the suburbs, conducted a search of the crime scene with the additional assistance of the Forest Preserve. Um, The search uncovered little to no real evidence. Um, Any potential link is really, you know, it's like there's a lot of shit in the woods. Um, And the search itself was later criticized due to those organizing the search, allowing untrained individuals to trample over, which is, again, one of the things with searches is you want people from the community to be involved, but then you have them all over there spitting on evidence and stomping on bones and doing all sorts of dumb shit. So it's a catch-22. The autopsies were performed the day after their discovery. The autopsies were uh, performed by three experienced forensic pathologists um were unable to reach an agreement on either a date or cause of death again them being out in the colds and january's in chicago were no shit right um, i can and especially with what they had in the 50s to be able to determine this um the experts did determine via an examination of the sister's stomach contents um, that contained their meals and snacks from the evening of the 28th that both girls had likely died within five hours of the time that they had been at the theater. So they mm-hmm. most likely died on December the 28th or the 29th, but they weren't found until almost a month later. Yeah. And they weren't decomposed enough that it was, oh, this is a decomposing body. It was right. too very natural looking bodies um the cause of death in each case was ruled as being a combination of shock and exposure although each pathologist reached this conclusion via process of eliminating other causes so it was like we know what it ain't and so this is what we're left with um in addition many of the wounds may have been inflicted by rodents and some of the uh puncture wounds might have been inflicted after death so when they Mm -hmm. got tossed or something like that or when they were in the car you know no obviously fatal wounds were discovered on each body and toxicology reports they hadn't drank drugged poisoned any of that um no items of their clothing were ever found so they were indeed nude Um, but their bodies were clean again Hmm. what the fuck the autopsies would discover that Barbara had likely engaged in sexual intercourse around the time of her death, though they could not tell consensually or not. Right. Um, though I will say, do this or I will murder your sister is still non-consensually and may not leave marks on your body. Yeah. Um, the official death certificates listed their cause of death as being murder. Um, the specific means was secondary shock. 
um, and that their body temperatures had been really uh, had been reduced to below the critical level compatible with life. So more or less froze to death and went into shock. Um, That's a terrible way to go. In addition to the murder and and potential rape and things like that, like that is bad. But then to you can't get up or you're in no shape to get up and you freeze. You just have to kind of lay there and die. Yeah. It's horrible. One of the coroners to perform the autopsies, Walter McCarran, surmises sisters' bodies had lain discovered for many days before their discovery. Again, maybe, maybe not. Yeah. Um, but due to the frigid temperatures and recent snowfalls had maybe been covered by snow and then preserved with it being so fucking cold. Um, and they had had a quick melt off right before the bodies were discovered. So they could have been under a snowdrift. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Despite these official conclusions, the chief investigator for the Cook County Coroner's Office, Harry Gloss, disagreed with the official time of death, later stating to the media there had been numerous marks of violence on those girls' faces. Again, they had been bruised, which you can get bruised in the, you know, of a kidnapping, you know, punch somebody in the face and say, shut the fuck up. Mm -hmm. Um, Strongly indicate there being recipients of violence as opposed to getting bitten by rats post-mortem. Uh, Gloss had also contended that a thin layer of ice found encrusted on the girls' bodies indicated that they had most likely been alive until at least January 7th, since only after that date would there have been sufficient sufficient snowfall to react with the girls' natural body heat and create a layer of ice. So, essentially, to create a layer of ice, they would have had to have been warm enough to melt the snow and that snow would have had to immediately or that melt would have immediately refrozen. And the only way to do that is right. if your bodies were warm at some point. Interesting. Yeah. Um, hmm. Gloss contended this proved their bodies had been warm when they had been deposited beside the German church road. Since only after January 7th had there been sufficient enough snowfall to do that. Um, in addition to these facts, Gloss also stated that both girls had been as abs- both girls had been sexually assaulted throughout their period of captivity and adding that the autopsy conducted upon Patricia had discovered semen uh, on her body and that curdled milk had been found in Barbara's stomach, even though she did not drink milk at home or at the cinema. So, Oh, that's weird. Right. Um, so of course with a case like this, there's controversy um, Harry Gloss strongly believed the official suspect in the case named Edward Bedwell had been the individual who had committed the sisters' murders. Gloss asserted that the wounds noted upon the girls' bodies in the autopsy had not been adequately investigated or considered. He would also further assert, in his opinion, that the wounding and assault marks had been evidence that the girls had been beaten prior to their murder uh, in tandem with the sexual activity and were thus in line with the claims Bedwell had provided to investigators in his January 1957 interrogations. Bedwell is the fellow who said that they were uh, coerced. Um, and again, I I don't doubt. Um, yeah. Gloss would also claim the investigators had refused to disclose these and potentially other lurid details of the case, which we do know back in the day they would not talk about sexual assault or things right. like that happening to young girls, especially in the media. Um, there's actually a case that we learned about in communications law where, you know, a family of a murder victim sued a newspaper for reporting that she had been sexually assaulted. 
And the Supreme Court ruled that, no, that's something that's within the purview of the media to um, talk about. Um, However, it is still common practice in journalism that you do not name living rape victims. Right. Um, So fun journalism inside baseball fact. Um, So they had kind of kept these case, those details to protect the girl's reputations or spare the mother's feelings. Again, it's the 50s, I can imagine. Um, Similar allegations would be repeated in later years by others, some of whom claimed they had seen the original case files and to have interviewed other residents of McKinley Park who alleged both girls uh, had the habit of spending free time outside bars on 36th Street and Archer Avenue. Oh, Um, please. So I somehow doubt that these little girls who were going to go see Elvis for the 12th time we're you know cruising outside bars on the south side but exactly how old were they again 15 and uh 12 yeah no 12 oh my god i didn't remember that yeah no no i I knew they were teenagers but i couldn't remember but no i mean yeah if, if, if these girls were 18 19 20 possibly right in but which case i'm 15... like cruise to your heart's content Yes, exactly. And a twelve-year-old, a twelve-year-old and a fifteen-year-old. No, they're they're going to see Elvis at the movies, right? And as like, and if you're a fifteen-year-old sister, you're not gonna be like putting your baby sister in harm's way. Absolutely like, that's not. just that's not something you're absolutely gonna do. not. Yeah, I agree with that. No. So, despite Gloss's insistence that the pathologist had taken the girls off Madison Street and put them into respectability, he was saying they were hoes, and everyone else was like, "Dude, what?" shut up how dare you how dare you like calm down man investigators connected the connected to the case continuing continued to insist that there was no evidence of the girls being disreputable or the recipient of extreme violence or sexual molestation prior to their death so this sure does sound like a creepy fantasy of an old man right that these were two loose young ladies who were and i'm like homie why would you even suspect that Homie, you need to take a nap. After refusing to retract his statements, (laughs) Gloss was fired by uh, Coroner Walter E. McCarran on February 15th, although Gloss would insist his firing was politically motivated, of course. Nonetheless, Um, Gloss would be deputized by Sheriff Joseph D. Lohman, who agreed with Gloss's conviction that... Yeah, though the <laughs> sheriff said Rubes. that he thinks that they had been tortured by a sex predator who innocently lured them in. So the sheriff was not quite as lurid as Mr. Gloss was. Or he th- he thinks it was somebody who looked like Elvis, persuaded them to get in his car. Hey, you know, it's cold. Let me drive you home. Or, hey, yep. sit in the car and warm up with me. And then, you know, something bad happened. But whether yeah. or not that they had been actually, like beaten and raped there's no telling there's no knowing um because it's conflicted of course there were sightings because there always are in these cases between the confirmed sighting of the sisters at the brighton theater on december 28th and the subsequent discovery of their bodies 25 days later several unconfirmed sightings both in and around chicago were reported uh numerous people claim they saw them on a cta bus on archer avenue heading east into the city um, the bus driver was among those who, again, said that that's why, you know, that's and they saw he said that they got off on Western Avenue, 
Mm-hmm. No idea why they would do that. And again, right. like I said, these they look like average little white girls. I, right. you know, yeah. there's nothing that really stands out. They're pretty. They're both pretty little girls, but yeah. um. Yeah. A young man named Roger Bernard informed investigators he had also attended Love Me Tender that night and sat behind Barbara and Patricia Grimes close to their friend Dorothy. According to Bernard, he left the theater approximately one minute before the sisters who had walked down Archer Avenue a short distance and a late model Greed Buick had stopped beside. Earlier, they said Mercury. Now we now we've got a Buick. Um, the girls had hesitated before continuing walking, which could mean that somebody was shouting something at them. Who hasn't mm-hmm. been shouted at from a car? Um, just past 42nd Street with the sisters walking by this stage ahead of him, a black 1949 Mercury occupied by two teenage boys pulled alongside the girls, although they simply giggled before continuing walking in the direction of their home. Again, who hasn't been yelled at by teenage yep. boys from a car? Uh Two other teenage boys, Ed Lorden and Earl Zastro, informed investigators that while they had been driving through McKinley Park at about 1130, they had seen the sisters on 35th Street. Reportedly, the two had been giggling and jumping out of doorways at each other, which sounds like a sister thing to do. Yeah, um, it does. With one telling the other, those... uh those two Grimes sisters as they passed them. At this point, the girls would have been about two blocks from home. So this would have been about Aww. 1130. Yeah. A security guard named Jack Franklin later informed investigators he had offered directions to two girls on the morning of December 29th, about 12 hours after they had left the theater. This verbal exchange occurred near Lawrence and Central Park Avenues, and Franklin later concluded that the girls had been the crime sisters. The sole reason is because both girls had been rude and abrupt. Which, <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. On the same date of Franklin's alleged sighting, a friend of Barbara's named Judy Burrow reported to investigators that she had seen the sisters about 2.30 p.m. walking westward on Archer Avenue. Um, So the day after, this other friend says, yeah, I saw them on Archer Avenue um, about 2.30. So about two blocks away from where they were, um, the two teenage boys had seen them. Uh, a cla- another classmate was adamant that she had seen Patricia walking past a restaurant on the next day, uh, on December 29th. Patricia had been in the company of two identified young girls. The sighting followed yeah. by another six hours later by a cashier at the Clark Theater downtown who claimed she saw both girls after midnight. Again, these just look like little white girls. Um, and then they saw them in apartments. There's, there's so many that I will be here forever if I go through all of them. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to talk a little bit about the suspect that we talked about earlier, which is Edward Bedwell, um, Edward Lee Benny Bedwell. Um, he was 21 at the time and semi-literate, uh, originally from Tennessee. Um, and he had been evicted from his family's East Garfield Park home in November and had earned money working part time in a Chicago restaurant was a tall individual who allegedly bore some strong resemblance to Elvis. According to John and Minnie Doros, the owners of the restaurant where he washed dishes, he and another young male had been at her premises in the company of two girls who physically resembled the Grimes sisters on December 30th. Doros conveyed this information to police on January 24th. Hmm. Interesting. Bedwell was arrested thereafter and subjected to interrogation for three days. Whoa. Initially, Bedwell was insistent that John and Minnie 
Doros and a patriot named Renee Eccles, who had corroborated the eyewitness statements, were mistaken in their identification of the girls. However, he was formally charged with the murders on January 27th, having signed a 14-page confession. Woo. Again, he's semi-literate. In which mm-hmm. he said that he and a 28-year-old acquaintance named William Cole Willingham had indeed been in the company of the girls. He stated they were together until January 7th, typically drinking in different Skid Row saloons. According to Bedwell, after several days in the girls' willing company, shortly after he and his companion had said the, fed the sisters hot dogs, it is Chicago, um, yeah. they had beaten both girls before throwing their nude bodies into a ditch. When both sisters had refused their sexual advances. Upon reading Bedwell's confession, Loretta Grimes was quoted as saying, it's a lie. My girls wouldn't be on West Madison Street. They didn't even know where it was. Again, we come back to these girls were not bar hopping, you know, winches. They were literal children. Yeah. Willingham admitted that he'd been in the company of Bedwell and two girls in the early hours of December 30th, but denied the girls were the Grimes sisters. So there was somebody else. He was trying to feed hot dogs and sexually assault um he was he was i mean chicago i feel like hot dogs and sexual assault are happening more often than i care to think about um he he also emphatically denied any involvement in the murders bedwell himself recanted his confession stating that he'd only provided a confession after being held in custody for four days and the mistaken belief the police would subsequently release him if he did so that is so fucking common that is so fucking common um, the autopsy reports upon both girls also supported Bedwell's uh, recantation as there had been no alcohol in their system. So they were not bar hopping and, and no hot dogs, right? No hot dogs in the belly. That's what I was and, thinking this whole time. Right. Like, but I don't remember you mentioning hot dogs. No, believe me, I would have mentioned hot dogs right away. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I'm starving. I want a hot dog. Um, nor had the girls been beaten to death. Furthermore, Bedwell is known to have been clocked in at Ajax Consolidated Company, his place of employment, from 4.19 p.m. to 12.30 p.m. that day. So there's he wasn't he was at work. There was no way he could have been picking up the girls from the, you know, movie theater. Um, With further records confirming Bedwell had been working in Cicero on the date he said he had murdered them. On February 6th, he was freed on $20,000 bond, paid for him by an individual from Champaign, Illinois. Who knows what's going mm. on there? Um, the same year as his acquittal, Bedwell would be tried and acquitted of a 1956 rape of a 13-year-old girl in Oak Hill, Florida. Hmm. Um, so, but he was acquitted, so I don't know. And he passed away in November of 1972. So he wasn't very mm-hmm. old when he passed away. Yeah. Uh, Max Fleeg is another one. He was a 17-year-old suspect, initially considered one of the prime suspects due to his age. Fleeg was pre- protected by contemporary Illinois law that prevented juveniles from being subjected to polygraph tests. Nonetheless, um, he was persuaded to take an unofficial oh, no. polygraph test. Never do that. No. Allegedly, he confessed to the murders, but can't use those against him. So they were forced to release him without charge. In addition, police were unable to charge Fleeg with the murders due to there being a lack of physical evidence that cooperated his confession. So you've got lots of people confessing to shit and it doesn't even match the stuff. Yeah. He was later jailed for the murder of a different woman. Ugh. So, Max, Max. And then we have Walter Kranz. Walter Kranz was a 53-year-old 
steam fitter and self-proclaimed psychic. Oh, no. Uh, who phoned a switchboard operator at Chicago Central Police Complaint Room to inform on January 15th to inform the operator that of his conviction that both sisters were deceased and that their bodies would be found in Lyons Township, which is not where they were found. Um, Kranz refused to disclose his name to the operator in this phone call, simply stating he experienced this revelation in a dream. Nonetheless, the operator was able to trace the call to a location close to his home. The park described by Kranz in his telephone call would prove to be approximately one mile from the location where the girls were found. When questioned, Kranz informed the police that several members of his family and ancestors possessed psychic powers. And he had this particular vision after a night of heavy drinking. Wow. Well, that explains a lot. Walter, Walter. Although initially yeah. considered by police to be their number one suspect in the murders and handwriting experts after determining he may have written a ransom note, Kranz des- denied any involvement in the sister's abduction. He was released and never charged. Yeah. So um, in the weeks between the disappearance and the discovery, Loretta Grimes was unable to work and thus earn money and pay the mortgage. Um, so they raised funds for the family, thankfully. Um, they would also be able that would allow them to pay off the mortgage on their home and bury the girls, which we as we know, that is a um expensive. Yeah. Um, and they are buried together under the same headstone Aww. at the Holy Yes, at the Holy Sepulcher Cemetery um in Alsip. Following a wake held for the girls' memory at the St. Morris Church. Uh, all fees were waived by the Wolfschlager Funeral Home, and the girls were buried side by side. Um, and their pallbearers were their classmates. Um, in May of 1957, Loretta Grimes received an anonymous telephone call from an individual who claimed to have undressed and killed her daughters, which is Oh, nice. my God. I hate this Jesus. person. Why oh, people? Seriously. Oh. Although the Grimes' family had received numerous hoax phone calls following the girl's disappearance. This particular caller, having ridiculed police efforts to affix blame upon suspects such as Edward Bedwell, ended his phone call with information indicating he may have indeed been the perpetrator. I know something about your little girl that no one else knows, not even the police. The smallest girl's toes were crossed at the feet. The caller then laughed before hanging up. Fuck this dude. So was it true? I have no idea. Huh. Um, one year, possibly. One year after the murder, Loretta Grimes publicly stated her conviction that her daughters had been murdered by an individual, individual they had known, stating that although the weather had been bitterly cold on the night of their abduction, the girls would have never entered a vehicle driven by an individual unknown to them, regardless of any discomfort. So we know this because two different cars, like, passed them and, like, yeah. They had some interaction and they just kept walking. Chicagoans yeah. are tough. They they will walk. They're they're fine. Yeah. Um Joseph Lohman, the Cook County Sheriff, uh, who would believe they had beaten, tortured, and murdered by a sex predator, um, died of natural causes in 1969. Um Bye. on the 18th, right? No one's I'm, missing I'm like, so if he had a hard drive, check his hard drive. Um yeah. On the 18th anniversary of the disappearance of the girls, Ernest Spioto, the sole detective who had been involved in the investigation from the very beginning and who had remained assigned, 
to the investigation announced to the media that there were no credible suspects in the case. Officially, the murders of the Grimes sisters remain unsolved, even though this is an open case. The Grimes sister's younger brother, James, who was just 11 at the time of his sister's murder, stated in 2013 that he welcomed what he saw as a public reopening of the case, stating, I just assumed it was never going to be solved, but maybe there's hope. Now, in 2013, Internet sleuths did some Internet sleuthing, because that is what we do. Good. Um, A retired West Chicago police officer named Raymond Johnson began, began a personal investigation into the case. Johnson, considered by many to be an expert on the case, had become interested in the case in 2010 when he had been researching a book he had been writing about the city's history. Having extensively researched the case, Johnson stated that the case is still a solvable one, but only with public assistance. And he believes the perpetrator of the crime had been a 23-year-old self-confessed child killer named Charles Leroy Melquist, who had been considered a suspect in the children's abduction and murder in 1957. Melquist had been convicted of the ninth of the September 1958 murder of a 15 year old girl named Bonnie Lee Scott. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, whom he had known prior to her murder and whose decapitated body had been found two months after her disappearance, less than 10 miles from where the Grimes girls were found. Following the discovery of Scott's body, investigators had noted similarities in this murder and body disposal and that of the Grimes sisters. Nonetheless, Melquist was never questioned. Because oh, why would we? Why would we? Right. The day after Bonnie Lee Scott was discovered, the Loretta Grimes received a phone call from an individual who, on this occasion, claimed responsibility for Scott's murder. On this occasion, the caller stated, I've committed another perfect crime. This is another those cops won't solve and they're not going to affix blame to bedwell or barry cook which who knows who barry cook is loretta grimes would remain adamant until her death that this caller had been the same individual who had contacted her back in may and had and apparently yes she the daughter did have the crooked toes oh yeah stating i will never forget that voice yeah. Charles Melquist has never been charged with this alleged involvement in the death, and he died in 2010. So this is still an unsolved murder. Okay, if they did find DNA, we can test it. DNA. No. Okay. I don't, they, they found okay. semen, but they didn't preserve it because of the 50s, oh. and you couldn't even blood type semen back then. Right. The most you could uh, say was it's present. And I, I was thinking if yeah, they actually I want to believe it. that this DNA is still somewhere, but something tells me it's not. Yeah, it's probably this, not. This the only way this is gonna get solved is if there's a deathbed confession. I, I there's no yeah. no way for us to right. go back and, and anything. Homie that he suspects died in twenty ten. Right. So like you know, not likely at this point. Yeah, it's very frustrating that those cops just didn't seem to really care a lot about these missing sisters. Imagine that. Yeah, I know. Never, never just do. imagine. Never do. Yeah. Am I going next or, Lou, who do you want to go next? You can go next. Okay. This is a very short story. So <laughs> I'm telling two hometown murders that my mom always told me about while I was growing up. Um, you know, just the casual stuff like, oh, yeah, that guy um, was holding in his guts after they've been slashed out. And, oh, that guy had his head blown off in that restaurant. Like, oh, OK. OK, Mama. Yeah. Thanks for telling me this. I'm five. You know, 
I'm kidding. Oh, I was five, but um, my mama was, you know, always into true crime. So these stories just, you know, she loved to tell me this stuff. This is why I am who I am. So my mom, and these are from my hometown of Pontotoc, Mississippi, which is like 20, 30 minutes outside Tupelo, Mississippi. It's all in North Mississippi. You either know where it is or you don't care. So anyway, we're moving on. So my mom worked for a local school system back home. And for a lot of those years, her office was on Highway 15 in Pontotoc near a building that used to be a restaurant. And for as long as I can remember, it's been a private residence. But originally, it was a restaurant. That doesn't matter. Anyway, originally, this place was called Joe's Silver Spur All-Electric Restaurant because it was the first all-electric restaurant in Pontotoc. Um, I The fun thing is, is I enjoy joining these Facebook groups where they show stuff from like that used to be in whatever town you're in. And there is a um, Facebook group for Pontotoc County that has a lot of photos from like the old days. And I found where they had posted about this restaurant and it was like a new story about it saying it specialized in steaks, seafood, and barbecue. And a lot of people in the group were like, oh, yeah, we went to a lot of like high school banquets while we were there, stuff like that. Um, but, yeah, there was a whole new story about how oh, it was all electric and they have all this new equipment. Ooh, fancy, which all of it. I was like, I guess this is fancy back then. I don't know. Anyway. So my mom always told me about this restaurant and said how one day a guy walked up to a couple that was seated at a table in there and said something like, you knew I was going to do this and shot the guy's head off. And that's pretty well what happened. So picture it. It's July 21st, 1970. Um, I'm thinking that the restaurant was still called Joe's Silver Spur. I really don't know. Um, but Eamon Ray, who's 58, walked into whatever the restaurant was called, but it was the restaurant where at least the Silver Spur used to be, if it wasn't a Silver Spur at the time. Anyway, he walks into the restaurant with a shotgun, and he walks up to James Patterson, 56, a cattle hauler farmer and a former sheriff's deputy. The sheriff, local Pontotoc County Sheriff, quoted witnesses saying that Ray told Patterson, I told you two years ago I was going to do this, and immediately shot him. He, um, James Patterson died immediately of a 12-gauge shotgun wound to the throat. Damn. Um, yeah. 12-gauge shotgun to the throat, and his yeah. head was still fucking attached? I don't think so. Oh, which is why... Mama always said it as, oh, yeah, she sh this guy shot this other guy's head off. Yeah, so. usually that means that, you know, I would think a yeah. headshot obliterated his head. No, he did a bullet I, decapitation. I think, yeah, I think, I think that's what happened. I'm not really sure. Now, my mama, and I could not find this in any old newspaper reports, so this is 100% a rumor. Please do not come for me if this is not true. I'm telling you what the town gossip was, okay? Yeah. This could 100% be not true. My mother said, and this was a rumor, that Patterson was dating Ray's wife and had been for a while. Because, Ooh. again, when Ray shot Patterson, he said, I told you two years ago I was going to do this. Quit fucking my wife. I'm going to blow your head off. And, I mean, Patterson was sitting there with his wife when oh, all this Lord. went down. So, um, yeah, uh, Mr. Ray was a little tired that Mr. Patterson was was hitting it. 
apparently, <laughs> allegedly. Damn. James Patterson is buried at the Pontotoc City Cemetery. There are children heading to my doll. Oh, no. I see them running. They are heading toward the doll. Well, if they want it, it's theirs. Um. Anyway, okay. So, James Keep Patterson is buried. Yeah, at the Pontotoc City Cemetery, which is in Pontotoc. It's where I have a lot of family. It's where a lot of, obviously, Pontotoc's dead wind, wind up because it's the Pontotoc City Cemetery. He has a flat marker because you can only have flat markers in that section of the cemetery. And he is buried alongside his wife, Doris, who lived um, quite a ways. Um, I think she died in like 2001. So, and this happened so in was was Doris the community bicycle in question? No, this is the victim's wife. Okay. So they stayed. I mean, so the victim had been there. fucking the other guy's wife. Yes. Okay. So the, yeah. So Ray said that Patterson was messing with his wife and he said, I told you two years ago I was going to do this. And he shot Patterson in the head. So Patterson Damn. is at Pontotoc City Cemetery and Doris is buried right beside. They have a marker that is for both of them. So even though he allegedly did that, Doris, I guess, is, you know, Tammy Wynette. She's standing up. by her man. She is. I am pretty sure Eamon Ray is buried in Choctaw County, Mississippi, which is kind of central Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, because it was the only Eamon Ray I could find anywhere. Um, <laughs> in Mississippi, anyway. Um, it said he died February 25th, 1978, the age of 66. He has one of those flat veterans markers to mark his service in World War II. And then a simple headstone that just says father along with his names and dates. And all of his, like, his dates match up with the age of the Eamon Ray who... So wait, did he not go to prison? I don't think so, but I didn't really, I couldn't find much on it. All the stories were super short of, oh, a guy walked into a restaurant and killed a guy and he's been arrested. Okay. And there was... Okay. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure he did because... I'm sure half of Pontotoc saw it happen. Well, um, but if but it I, was like a fucking the wife kind of thing, they might have been like, well, that's just, yeah, that's just business handling itself. Um, I will say, and like I said, Eamon Ray is the one who did the shooting, accusing Patterson of sleeping with his wife. Uh, his obituary did not mention any wife or ex-wife, but it did mention his children. So he had mm. relations with some woman at some point, and apparently they must have... Um, broken up um i don't know i don't want to dig too too deep because you know that's someone's personal business that i'm telling on a podcast right. but, but like i said this is one of those stories my mom always told me growing up of oh yeah a guy shot a guy in that restaurant and now i work in the building right beside it i, always <laughs> I love weird. it anyway so that's my very short first story my second story is a little longer um and it does involve another Pontotoc murder and it is um a lot more gory if that's even possible all right Lou who scare us to okay death. well they're not as scary as I wanted them to be but y'all like <laughs> I said I th- this week was rough for me and I did not have time to do the research I wanted to do so uh This is something that's always interested me. So I just hit up Google and Reddit. And so we're going to talk about trigger warning skinwalkers. I do know that some people are very sensitive to the term. So I apologize if you have something, a a better term to refer to them, please email us. We are uneducated about the proper way to refer to these 
uh cryptids i guess uh yeah. and uh and yeah we we want to be sensitive but i'm just gonna call them by the name that everybody knows them as so trigger 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 if this is something that is sensitive to you okay so i've got two stories so i'm just gonna start with the first one we live in a rural community on the navajo reservation my aunt and her two brothers were home alone while my grandparents had left for the evening to attend a chapter house meeting. They were in the house, and like many people from the reservation, they didn't have electricity. It had been dark outside for about an hour, and my aunt and uncles were getting ready for bed. Outside, they heard noises, as if someone was moving things around outside. My oldest uncle went to look out the front window and saw a figure out by the truck. This was immensely out of the ordinary because the closest neighbor was miles away. Whatever it was opened the truck door and began to dig through the personal items that my family had left in the vehicle. My aunt and uncles were frightened by the sight and knew that they should take action. They took out the rifle and all steadied themselves to hold it up. They flung open the door and aimed the gun at the dark figure. The figure turned and started to walk towards them, totally unfazed by the weapon. My uncle pulled the trigger, but nothing happened. The figure drew closer, and my aunt began to smell something like a rotting corpse. It was so strong, it made her gag. My uncle continued to pull the trigger with no luck, and the figure came closer and closer. Off in the distance, headlights were coming up the road. My grandparents were returning. The figure looked toward the lights and started to move away and tucked itself behind a tree near the house. My oldest uncle ran toward the truck with the gun. My grandfather got out of the car and my uncle pointed to the tree. The thing was poking out its head to observe what they were doing. My grandfather ran into the house and over the stove grabbed a handful of ashes and rubbed it over the gun and placed an ash-covered bullet in the chamber. He walked out onto the porch and fired toward the tree. Whatever that thing was didn't expect the gun to go off. The gunshot echoed and the dark figure began running. My grandma chased my aunt inside and my uncles and grandfather went after it. There weren't many roads or paths, so as my grandfather and uncles chased after the figure, the truck was bouncing and the headlights were not fixed on one particular spot. My uncle swears that whenever the headlights would hit the figure, he saw a woman. Not only that, whatever it was was running on all fours like a bear. My grandfather eventually stopped the truck, and as they neared the ditch that drops about 20 feet, he got out and began to yell in Navajo. My uncle says he was yelling about a local woman. He yelled that he wasn't scared and that he knew it was her and to leave his family alone. A few days passed, and there was news that the woman that my grandfather was yelling about had passed. Mm. I've, I've always been told that if you know who the skinwalker is, say their name and it will kill them what and wow that is story number one from reddit that was this nice yes. and terrifying yes so i a couple of stories i read mentioned that cover, putting ash on the bullet will huh. yeah injure them but interesting I, never heard that yes have not done a lot of research into the the 
lore. How to kill one. Yeah. yeah. So this is something that we, we will definitely come back and investigate, but it was just. Yeah. yeah Cause I find it so fascinating because it's, it's like the same as demon rules where if you mm-hmm. learn their name, you can. Yeah. Which all of that to me, all of that to me, it's interesting how different cultures have different critters, monsters, whatever you want to call them, superstitions, whatever, but they are also similar. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. when you get down to it, they all have these aspects that hmm, like humans, interesting that that. Yeah. Hmm, well, I love it because like it. humans, like our brains work in a very specific way. We have very specific boxes we like ticked, you know, yes. so yeah. it makes so much sense. Yeah, that that's terrifying. Thanks, Lucy. Bananas. Yes. I love it. All right, Spider Monkey. You're up next. Right. Unless you want me to go. I'll go. Yay. We're going to the bar. So <laughs> so a fun story about this is when I was in Chicago in 2018, before I moved here um, to go see the Smashing Pumpkins, me and my friend Nikki and our friend Casey were kind of wandering around Lakeview and Wicker Park in that area. And we managed, we got over to Boys Town, which is the the gay part of the town um vibrant gay neighborhood it's a fantastic little place um and nikki goes hey this bar uh gacy used to cruise at and Dahmer used to cruise at and i was like well shit Uh-oh. let's go in and because it was you know three o'clock in the afternoon it was closed <laughs> So, and that was when I was like, wait, your guys' bars closed? And she's like, yes, you degenerate heathen. The bars closed. <laughs> I'm like, all right. Fuck, man. Y'all are squares. So, haven't made it back to that bar during opening hours, but we're going to talk about it. It is called Ooh. the L&L Tavern, known as the creepiest bar in the United States. So it was kind of the epicenter of punk and counterculture, um, Clark and Belmont, which is a really kind of fun alt kind of area. Um, When I was at Loyola, they had a really good army surplus store there. Um, It's all kind of getting gentrified now, but it was really fun um, in that area. And um, so they described that intersection where the bar is as kids with mohawks and leather jackets sat next to my lemonade stand with their jelly donuts and uh, cigarettes, skinheads, <laughs> boy punks, riot girls, 77 punks and metalheads crowded into tight circles and broke into the kind of fights that were all fists and snot and blood. <laughs> uh, you don't see that much anymore. There's a target there now because if Chicago oh. has spare space, we will put a target there. Um that replaced a Dunkin' Donuts that was known as Punkin' Donuts, which is kind of cute. Now I want to start that bar yes. or that club or donut shop. Across the street, though, the L&L Tavern remains very much there and very much doing its thing. And so if you want to go, <laughs> it is at 3207 North Clark Street. Reports say the L's in the name of the bar honor former owners Lefty Miller and Loretta Magidson who bought the bar in the 1980s. The name was preserved when the current owner, Ken Franson, took over. The bar had previously been known as Columbia Tavern and Liquors and had been owned and operated by Joan Gillen, according to the Chicago Bar Project. 
Gillen died in 2004 at the age of 86. The Chicago Bar Project quoted her obituary. Shortly after Joan Gillen got married, her husband Paul told her he expected her to tend bar in his tavern. At first, she balked at the idea, but she took the reins and ran the establishment, the Chicago establishment, for 53 years. In the end, good for her. I love Joan. In the end, she was tough and could handle all kinds of situations, said her daughter Susan. In a neighborhood bar, you run into different things and problems with the people, and she handled it all, and she enjoyed it. (laughs) Her husband, Paul, who had died in 1979, became partners in the Columbia Tavern just after they got married. It was originally on Halstead and then moved to Clark Street in the early 60s. Um, There was... A bar in operation at Clark Street before that, maybe, but for all intents and purposes, this is where it is. Uh, Tony Zabowski of the Chicago Hauntings Ghost Tours, who I follow on all the things, and he is super, super interesting, um, points out that LNL is not necessarily known as a haunted location, but it has been voted the creepiest bar in the USA. There's even a sign in the window written by hand, a black magic marker, that advertises the bar in just those terms. And it does say, <laughs> the creepiest bar in the usa and nice. i feel like this was done by a woman because you can tell it was traced in pencil first and then written over with barker mm. uh when jeffrey Dahmer was arrested in 1991 he admitted to killing 17 young men some of whom he mutilated and cannibalized and he did commit most of his murders in milwaukee however according to the book images of america east lakeview by matthew nickerson Owner Franson said he was at the LNL when Dahmer was arrested and recalled customers recognized him as a regular at the bar. Again, hmm. Milwaukee in Chicago or maybe like a couple hour train ride. I could see it. And he yeah. was a frequent. Um, he would come to Chicago Pride every year. So it's not a, not outside the realm. Uh, multiple sources quote an LNL employee named Frankie, whom Dahmer was reportedly interested in, as saying the serial killer did indeed like to sit by the window at the bar and stare at the young men across the street at the pumpkin donuts. <laughs> uh, there are two known victims who Dahmer picked up in Chicago, though neither of those meetings happened at or near the LNL. Uh, they mostly happened at. Um, bus depots and then another bar called uh carol speakeasy in old town Mm -hmm. uh there were also reports that back in the 70s john wayne gacy would visit the lnl franson is quoted as attributing that claim to a previous owner Beating their investigation in December of 1978 police discovered 29 bodies in a basement of a crawl space in the surrounding yard in uh norwood park township it's now uh des plains um, there are another four bodies found in the Displains River. And here's a fun fact. If you have a gentleman caller over and they tell you, <laughs> oh, yeah, I grew up in Displains, and you go, oh, yeah, that's where Gacy lives, um, they leave. So, <laughs> you know, hey, how many times have I cock-blocked myself with random serial killer facts? Many. Um, Gacy uh, it- he t- he clearly was not up to your standards then. Right. Yes. If you do not get horny hearing me info dump <laughs> about serial killers, we're not we're not compatible. I'm sorry. No, no. You don't have to get off on serial killers, please don't, but you need to get off on my astounding <laughs> knowledge of them. I ask so little. 
Uh, Gacy would later be convicted of 33 counts of murder in 1980, and he was executed on May 10th of 1994. Gacy's background at face value didn't seem to suggest anything untoward. He owned a construction company. Um, he was a precinct captain for the Democratic Party. He had been photographed with Rosalind Carter. Um, but he had also gone to prison for sodomy in Iowa. So, guys, yeah. guys. Yeah. Um, most infamously, he was known for his work as a clown, which we know. Which, mm-hmm. if you ever hear him described as, like, luring young boys in with a clown costume, no, he lured teenage and yeah, other young men in with, like, pot and the promise of jobs. Let's yeah. be real here. The victims are no less deserving of sympathy just because they might have wanted to smoke a little weed. I know. Uh, with regard to the present-day L&L, the claim is that Gacy actually showed up there in full clown costume, which, okay, that's not the weirdest thing I've ever seen in a bar, but... I- can't say i'd enjoy it um the book images of america east lakeview also points out that well before any stories about serial killers started showing up two past owners of the bar were victims of attacks and unrelated incidents oh my chicago's a rough town man yeah (laughs) the book says early owner paul gillen jones husband was the victim of a robbery at the bar then it was still called columbia tavern and liquors in 1961, in which he was bound and gagged and had lit matches held to his back. Oh, geez. Like, what kind of fucked up robbery is this? Right. Um, and then in 1950, then owner Marshall Talixson was struck in the eye in a drive-by shooting. Jeez Louise. Finally, it's important to emphasize that Casey and Dahmer, it's not funny. It shouldn't be a joke. And when the article where I took the vast majority of this was written, they had just identified another of Gacy's victims that week. Yeah. So that is the L&L Tavern on Clark Street in Chicago. I strongly recommend. It's a local business. Go check it out. Um, And yeah, buy a beer. Ask the bartender some crazy stories. And tip your bartender, too. Tip, yes. tip the bartender, tip the waiter. It is hard out there for the service industry. Don't yep. be an asshole, and then go to Target. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, I have another story about two men in Pontotoc, Mississippi, who <sighs> just couldn't get along. Imagine Although this one. This one has a lot more um, detail to it because, for one. The uh, legal documents are online, so they're very easy to find. And then two, a member of the victim's family has written a blog about it. So if it is to be believed, and and I mean, it's basically what was passed down in his family about it. Um, So this whole story is a mix of those two things, but mostly heavily on the legal documents. So don't come after me. So um. Growing up, my mama always told me about two local men who fought, and then one of them crawled down the road that they were fighting on to the main highway, Highway 6, with his guts hanging out. That's how my mama always worded it. Um, So I was like, what? And actually, a few months ago, back before my mom died, we actually rode around the area where it all went down. And some of it is blocked off like the road is closed in one part and all that but we i mean this was literally 
maybe a month before mama died. It was, it's weird, but like we had dug into this right before she passed. And so I, it's been on my mind to, to share it. So picture it. It's Pontotoc, Mississippi, December, 1968. There are two friends in town, Jimmy Crosby, who's 31 and Billy Joe Kidd, 29. They were Ooh, both married. That sounds about right. Oh yeah. Just wait. Uh, oh boy. <laughs> Uh, both were married and their wives were friends too. Um, but then Joe, Billy Joe, I think he went just by Joe. Joe and his wife divorced and they had a custody battle. Happens all the time. Jimmy's mm-hmm. wife, who was friends with Joe's wife, convinced Jimmy to testify in the divorce proceedings against his friend. Because supposedly, my mother said this, also the Jimmy's family's blog says this, that Jimmy had walked into Joe's store because Joe owned a little store in town and caught Joe in the act of sexual relations Uh with someone who was not his wife. Oh, dear. So Joe was supposedly banging someone who is not his wife in his store in just the middle of the day <gasps> as you do oh my goodness so, yeah i mean that's that's the gist i've received if that is not 100 percent correct well just go correct that blog or go correct my mother's rumors um anyway so he testified against his friend joe and said yes i, I saw this you know he did cheat on his wife and so custody was awarded to joe's wife not long after that jimmy began receiving threatening phone calls um I don't know what it is, and maybe this happened everywhere, but it sure seemed to happen in Pontotoc a lot. Um, threatening phone calls used to be a really big thing. I mean, there's no caller Because you can't trace shit. Yeah, <laughs> and so, like, I remember my mom said, which is, a, this is a whole other story, my aunt actually had a stalker at one point, and he would call and leave and, like, say threatening things to my aunt and be say things like, I saw you downtown wearing such and such dress or I Ooh. saw you at whatever store today. Yeah, it was really creepy. Anyway, um, so, yeah. So, anyway, the um, the caller apparently disguised their voices. Um, but Jimmy would get mad and say, okay, you know what? Meet me somewhere in town. Like, I'm going to, you know, kick your butt or whatever. And no one would ever show up. So, <laughs> it's all talk. But... I'm not sure how they agreed to do this, but in December of 1968, Joe and Jimmy did talk. I'm not sure if this came out of a threatening phone call or what, but they agreed to meet and I guess have it out or discuss it out, whatever. It's December 8th. They decided to meet at a site on Clark Street uh, called Dynamite Hill, and it was called that because that's where they used to store dynamite. I don't know. Anyway, lots of Clark Streets in this episode. Yes, there are. Um, and Clark Street is connected to Highway 6, or it was connected to Highway 6 at the time, which is why I, I have the story of a guy crawled to the edge of the road with his guts hanging out. It doesn't do that now because they've closed off the road. But anyway, that doesn't matter. Supposedly, and, and most of what I'm about to tell you is from Joe's side of the story. Joe's family didn't want him meeting up with Jimmy. Joe's parents, Walter and Johnny Lou, best names ever, and his sister Dot, were all worried. And Billy kept up with them with a CB radio saying, okay, this is where I am. This is what I'm doing. Billy's parent, or I'm sorry, Joe's, Billy Joe, his parents' sister and his daughter, who was a teenager at the time, 
received a message from him on the CB radio saying something like, it's happening. So they started to head down to where the two guys were supposed to meet. And again, this is from 100% Billy Joe's perspective. Joe got into Jimmy's car and they talk and they get into an argument. And Jimmy pulled out a 38 snub, snub nose revolver. They struggled over the gun. Joe emptied it of its bullets and threw the gun in the back seat. And they did find the gun and the bullets in the back seat. Then they got into another argument and Jimmy began reaching in the car again. And Billy Joe thought he was assume- he was j- going for another gun. They struggled again. And meanwhile, Billy Joe's father, Walter, drove up and called out to him. But Billy Joe said, stay back. Jimmy has a gun. Then something hit Joe's right ear and he went unconscious, supposedly. Okay. When he woke up, he was laying face down in the backseat of the car. He heard three gunshots. He looked up and his dad, Walter, was in the front of the car, um, in front seat of the car, leaning from the front seat to the backseat. And Jimmy had just fired a gun. Joe reached for the gun that Jimmy, or Joe reached for the gun, but Jimmy fired and blew off the tip of one of Joe's fingers. Then Jimmy pushed the gun into Joe's chest, laughed, and pulled the trigger. So Billy Joe is now shot in the chest. He went to do it again, but the gun clicked and Jimmy was out of bullets. This gun, it's a different gun, was a 41 Magnum. I hope this means something to someone who's not me because I don't understand. Those are very big bullets. Uh, Well, I'm sure. Um, Meanwhile, up drives Joe's mother and sister and daughter. Because let's make this a family affair. Why not? So all of their testimonies were very confusing, but I can understand that because this is a mother, sister, daughter. They're watching their dad and their um, son or brother, dad, whatever. They're watching their family members in this bloody fight. So I'm sure their testimonies are confusing. Dot and Joe's... So Dot, the sister, and Joe's daughter got out of the car and began running toward Jimmy's car and Walter's truck. Jimmy tried to run toward Dot, but she ducked and he missed her. So then he got into her car and started driving off with Joe's mother in the car. I know this is so messy. I know. But then Joe's mom doesn't remember whether or not she got out of the car. But she does remember that Jimmy got into Dot's car. It's very confusing. Then they drove down the road toward Highway 6 and stopped. Johnny Lou, the mother, got out of the car and ran back to Dynamite Hill. By this point, Jimmy is at the intersection. So, Jimmy is at the intersection, okay? And he has a very severe wound to his stomach oh dear somehow all of this was left out of the kid family testimonies though like no one mentions that jimmy has a, a very intense wound to his stomach so he has a wound so bad in his stomach that yes it partially disemboweled him good The Crosby family said they believe in their blog that Joe held Jimmy while Walter cut him. So, Billy Joe is holding Jimmy, and then the dad, Walter, cuts him, right? Jesus. But no one from Jimmy's side of the family was there that night, so we truly have no clue. This is speculation. 
Now, the first person to arrive at the scene was actually a Memphis police officer. He was in town visiting his parents who lived nearby, and he heard someone hollering for help. And when he arrived, he saw Jimmy and Johnny Lou, Billy Joe's mother, and he said Jimmy was lying on the pavement, bleeding profusely. And this is his words from his testimony. It said he had some type wound in his stomach. It was open and looked like part of his intestines were showing. Johnny Lou was in shock and he was trying to calm her. Meanwhile, Jimmy said, I am dying. Someone get me to the hospital. You are all going to let me day here, lay here until I die. I am cold. Oh, A local minister was driving by, saw all of this, and he was one of the first civilians on the scene. He pulls over to see if he can help. And he said, Jimmy said, please don't let me lay here and die because people have died from a lack of attention and all. And when asked who cut him, he said, Billy and Honey. Um, Later, he said, Billy and Walt. Hmm. Either way, he's basically, Honey was the nickname of, I think, either Billy Joe or his daddy. One of them. Okay. I don't know why he would call a grown man Honey, but that's beside the point. Either way, he does say Billy and Walt, meaning Billy Joe and his dad cut him. Right. Right? Okay. And then a local couple... George and Ruth Simon passed by and they stopped too. Now, the Simons were probably one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest couple in Pontotoc County. They had a department store that was there for decades. Their family home, both George and Ruth had passed on. Their family home is still there. It's still in their family. They have this one amazing Christmas display. They have literally put up since my mother was a child. Like, this sucker has been up almost 70 years it's a very specific santa with reindeer that move it's my favorite thing ever so either way i say all that to say that's how i feel like i know that family but ruth simon took off her mink coat and put it on jimmy to keep him warm damn So yeah she had a mink coat which i'm like oh must be nice but i mean jimmy had said he was cold And so she put that on him to keep him warm. And Jimmy's family said in the blog they never forgot that act of kindness from her. That is very sweet of her. Yes. So Dot and Billy Joe's daughter took Billy Joe to the hospital. He survives all of this, even though he was shot in the chest. Walter drove himself to the hospital. He had been shot twice. Jesus. So Jimmy died of his stab wounds about five or six hours later. As I said earlier, he was 31. Walter died of his gunshot wounds a few weeks later on December 20th. He was 59. So Billy Joe Kidd was arrested and charged with murder. He was convicted of manslaughter. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison. And then in 1972, the conviction was overturned because the court ruled that the dying declaration that Jimmy gave was not actually a dying declaration at all because the victim was, quote, in no fear of impending death and was hopeful of recovery at the time the statement was made. What? Yeah, there's a little bit more to it than that, but that's a the big argument was he didn't think he was dying and so all of his statements he said were were going and i'm like he repeatedly said i'm dying please help me jesus christ yet what they're saying there is hope there that he might recover but he also knew he was that he was was dying Uh, so i don't know um the Crosby family blog says, you know, there is so much speculation in this case, and that's true. 
Um, oh, and by the way, I forgot to mention, they. I don't think they ever found, I don't think they ever tried Billy Joe ever again. Um, yeah, I think no. they let it go. Um, and, and as the Crosby family blog says, there's a lot of speculation about this case. Um, maybe Jimmy was the aggressor all along. Um, or maybe Joe and his family planned this attack on him and set him up and said, okay, yeah, come meet me. And then the whole family comes out to tussle. And right. You know, no one knows. And, and, I mean, maybe the kid family knows, but I it, it's so long ago. And what yeah, does it I, matter? You know, people have died now. It's been generations. Um, but I just, as I said, I grew up with this story of a guy crawled to the edge of the road holding his guts in. And that's Jesus. Less what happened. I just never knew the whys and the hows. And then you find out it's two friends who got into it. Because of a divorce and custody proceedings. And it's like, man, right. I just, I don't know. I, it, it's, it's ugly. And I know that obviously when you have things like that happening, when it's divorces and custodies and it's your family, you're so passionate, Shit you're so gets, upset, yeah. it gets real and it can get violent really quick, especially if you have weapons. So anyway, Jimmy Crosby is buried at West Heights Cemetery in Pontotoc, Mississippi, which is by West Heights. West Heights Baptist Church and my grandmother and great grandmother are there. I go out yeah. there all the time. Um, his monument's simple. It's got his name and dates on it with a scroll and a cross. Members of the kid family, including Joe's parents, Wayne and Johnny, and his sister Dot, are all buried at Ebenezer Cemetery in the Black Zion community of Pontotoc County. Dot died in 2022. Um, her obit mentions she was in, preceded in death by her parents and her brothers, including Billy Joe, but I can't find where he is buried. I have looked everywhere or he may have been cremated. I don't know, but it, right. I, I found some documentation that made me think he died in October 1993 at the age of 54, but that I, I'm not going to pin all my hopes and dreams on it because do you know how many Mississippi men are named Billy Joe Kidd? Oh, I'm like, sure ninety percent. There are a lot of men in this state now. They are from all you know age ranges, and they're from all time periods. But there were several I found that I'm like that's a similar age to my guy. So could it be? Right. I don't know. And like I said, I, I do in a way hate to dig up old family drama, but I was like, you know, these stories low key terrified me as a child. <laughs> And I was fascinated by them. And I love home, hometown murders of, oh, this is what happened in your hometown years ago. And it was right there. So you're always kind of scared of that one location. Like, oh, a murder right. took place there. But then, like, I think these two stories show at the same time, this is all family matters. And, right. you know, sometimes Shh. it's not spookiness of just a random person jumping up and killing or, or an evil doll haunting you or whatever sometimes <laughs> it's just you get really ticked off because someone's messing with your family and you're like i'm done i'm tired and then of you it. show and, up with a gun and yeah or an eye just right it just it gets out of hand it does and so i hope none of the families here have been offended that i brought this up i, I hope no one from want talk listens but <laughs> um <laughs> At the same, I mean, I'm not doing this to mean any disrespect. I, I'm, I think I might know some very distant relations from at least one family of of all of these families I've discussed, and they're good people. It's not like, but that's to say, too, you know, one you never know. apple who committed a murder or was a victim of a murder doesn't mean the rest of the family's trash. Um, 
I'm a big believer in that. So yeah, absolutely don't think badly about these families. It's just some drama that happened and everybody's you know. got their shit in their family. Like, you know, yep. you, can't, you know, it's just it one just, of those things. It is. And like I said, it just, it, I grew up with, oh, that guy got his head shot off and oh, that guy's holding his guts in. Okay, thanks, mama. I'm going to go to bed now. Right? It's incredible. Anyway. All right. Luhu, terrify us with more stories, please. Bring us home, right. Luhu. Yes. Okay. I'm going to do my best. I think my sugar's starting to drop. So, uh oh. I know. I'm starving too. <laughs> yeah, I haven't Okay. Eaten. So, here we go. I decided to join my bestie Karen for a three day stay at her grandmother's place on the res. Her grandmother lives near a place called Tuba City, Arizona, in the middle of nowhere, but surrounded by rural homes. We go to college together, and I was kind of interested to know about Navajo tradition. The first day we stayed, it was pretty chill, nothing out of the ordinary. But then her grandma said that a stray dog came out of nowhere and wouldn't leave. To me, it did act kind of strange and ugly, black, shaggy coat, looked like a mix between a German shepherd and a lab. That night, we were watching a movie in the living room. It had big windows that looked out to the front where the cars are parked, nothing fancy, with the curtains wide open. Grandma was in the kitchen cooking dinner, and we were watching a movie. Next to the window is a medium bookshelf where the DVDs are kept. Y'all remember DVDs? (laughs) Yes. I still have them. (laughs) Me too. Taryn went to the back. Okay, hold on. Karen went back to put a DVD where... We had just watched. Sorry, I had to take a drink of water. But she freaked out because that stray black dog was staring at us through the window, standing up, standing on top of the wood box outside. Not something normal dogs do, from my point of view, or hers. Usually my dog, which is a house dog, scratches to be let out. Res dogs aren't house dogs, and dogs... In, oh, God. I, I'm sorry. This is... Okay. Usually, my dog, which is a house dog, scratches at the door to be let in. Res mm-hmm. dogs aren't house dogs, and dogs inside houses are frowned upon in Navajo tradition. Hmm. They're meant to protect the house and owner. Okay. That's confusing. <laughs> the other dogs seem to stay away from it. Karen opened the door and yelled at it to get off the box. It ran off behind the shed. We went to Tuba City to get some groceries and came back inside the house. The dog was nowhere to be seen, so nothing unusual. Grandma went to visit some people, so it was just Karen and I. Around five o'clock, we heard someone trying to open the door. Both of us looked out there since there had been no car heard and no dogs barking. Looking out the living room window the door window to the door and see there was a dog trying to open the door with its paws two paws wrapped around the brass doorknob standing on its hind legs no i thought that was weird but wasn't really yeah you were freaked out by a dog trying to open the door with its paws okay (laughs) what the fuck she opened the door and chased it off grandma came back later and karen told her grandma didn't like what she heard got ready for sleep we slept in the spare bedroom since it was two beds one window with the curtains opened a little we turned off the lights but there was a sound coming from on top of the roof 
pitter-patter footsteps and scratching sounds and panting. It then sounded like it jumped off onto the large plastic water barrel they had. At first, we heard what sounded like barking, but as it grew louder, the other dogs seemed to be barking at something also. But all of a sudden, something was running around the house barking, and it was no dog. Nope, it wasn't. (laughs) This barking sounded human, a deep male voice barking like it knew that we knew it wasn't a dog. Woof, 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 arf, arf. Just exactly like that, adding the W's, R's, and A's. Then panting again by the window, and we started freaking out. Yeah. Karen decided to, in my opinion which was stupid, this was stupid, opened the curtains to look out. There was the stray dog on its hind legs looking into our bedroom, but this time it sunk, and what I thought were two black holes in the neck, another (laughs) pair were eyes that twinkled. Think of those ugly, glossy spider eyes staring at you. And the paws were deformed-looking hands with overgrown, somewhat thick and sharp fingernails again we both screamed and shut the curtains closed grandma came running through the door and seeing it first thing she did was grab ashes from the fireplace three Mm. shells into the shotgun from under her bed bless herself in navajo and went outside to shoot it yelling in navajo about how the thing wasn't welcome there and to get the hell out of there for it to go linger somewhere else them being both traditional, the next day they called a medicine man to come over and put cedar in. He prayed over everything with cedar smoke and an eagle feather, blessed the place, made us eat bitter herbs called eagle's gall or something, and gave me an arrowhead. Apparently, I needed to carry one for protection at, hmm. around in a little pouch called a, called a corn pollen. Seemed to work pretty well. The medicine man said the dog was a skinwalker, which in Navajo is a long word, but I will call them Yoshis. The body of a stray dog that had been killed by the skin doctor was a skin doctor. Skinwalker was made into an illusion so we wouldn't know it wasn't a real dog. He also said that Yoshis tend to harm people by using some sort of human bone uh, that was straw spit at someone. Think spitballs only deadlier to get human bones into them. Doctors can't detect it, but the medicine man that day pulled a piece of human skull out of grandma's right shoulder, pretty big, about (laughs) two inches long and one centimeter thick. It was real because we watched them pull it out of her. That was Jesus. And the end. So, yeah, that story was a little chaotic. I apologize. (laughs) Part of it is how it was written and part of it is. My sugar is dropping and I'm starting to sweat. Oh, oh bless your heart. Something. Um, yeah. I'm so, okay right now, but yeah. Okay, that, well that then. Is, we, we're we good. We're good. Uh, okay. But yeah, so that's a strange one. The second Skinwalker story talking about um, ashes and, yeah. and dog-like figures. So yeah, I think we need that's to, crazy. To, to do another cryptid and do a yeah, deep dive sure. into Skinwalkers. Oh, absolutely. I find it like crazy fascinating so yeah yes for sure for sure but yes Um, those are my my two skinwalker stories yay well i hope everyone is enjoying their spooky season then yeah i'm glad we could add to spooky season we will be back with an episode the day before halloween with more spookiness 
Um, Luhu, where can you find us? We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cemetery Row Pod, or you can send us an email to cemeteryrowpod at gmail.com. <laughs> so yeah, so go follow us, go leave us a review, please, and tell your friends about us, and have a safe and happy spooky season. Yay! Yay! Bye! Bye! Bye.